Well, good morning. Well, I hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Hope you got plenty of rest. Um, I know turkey makes people sleepy. And so I've been praying for y'all that you wouldn't fall asleep during my sermon. Uh, and so one of the reasons Roger's not preaching is because he's just going to walk around with a stick. And if you're not off, uh, he's coming after you. So stay awake. You can take a nap here in about 35 minutes, okay? Um, well, my wife and I, we're, we're extra thankful this year uh, because our family of three is about to become a family of four. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so we're, we're expecting another, uh, another baby girl here uh, in a couple of weeks. And so um, here we go. Okay. <laughs> Round two. Um, listen, when I, when I got married, uh, I, I was fully aware that I was devoting my life I was devoting my time, I was devoting my energy, and I was devoting my house uh, to this one woman. I didn't really foresee that a couple years later, I'd be devoting all that time to three women, okay? So uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon. I just, I want prayer, okay? So I appreciate that. I got a platform, so come on, (laughs) pray for me. Uh, Well, speaking of that, I want to pray for us before we jump in to the scriptures. And so we're going to be in Luke 4, and we're going to start in verse 33. And so you can open there. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let me pray, pray over us, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Well, Father God, uh, this is your church. These are your people. And I just ask that you'd encourage them today through your word. And I pray that you'd equip me to uh, deliver, deliver your word, and you'd help me to deliver it accurately and, and according to your will. And so, Father, we give you this time. We ask that you'd bless it, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, I've told you all, as I've told you all in the past, uh, before I transitioned into my role as the college and singles pastor here at Wayside Chapel, um, I coached football, basketball, and track at, at the middle school right down the road. Um, and, and one thing that we took great pride in as coaches is, is we would hold our players accountable uh, to certain expectations. And if you didn't live up to those expectations... Uh, meaning if you weren't doing your work in the classroom, if you're acting up, um, then you would come into the locker room and you'd see this big whiteboard that says reminders up top. And if your name was on that board, uh, you knew that you had reminders with your coach. And so after practice, you'd stay with us. And basically what that means is uh, we would use excessive strenuous activity uh, to remind you of what our expectations were for this program. And so I remember this one day, uh, I, I was having the kids do reminders. Uh, I was getting after them, and, and there's this one kid that was, that was running, and I realized he, he wasn't on my list, and he wasn't on the board. And so I pulled him aside, and I said, hey, man, like, I, I don't know if you got confused, like, uh, but you don't have to be here. Uh, you could go home if you want to. And I'll never forget his response. Uh, it was so moving. Uh, he said, coach, He said, if they're failing, I'm failing. He said, I'm not leading well. If they're not doing their job, I'm not doing my job. So he said, I want to run, coach. And I was just so moved, right? Like my heart leapt. I was like, these kids are listening, right? I'm preaching. They're responding. And I'm making an impact, right? I was like, that's the type of mentality. That's the type of sacrifice. That's the type of leadership that we're looking for. That's what we're hoping for. And I, remember I brought him in front of the whole team. I just praised this kid. I said, if you want to be a leader, follow his example. Just so moved 
Um, and then I, I remember coming in the next, the next day, and I came into my office, and I pulled up the failure report like I always do. Uh, and guess who was on that list? <laughs> that same kid. Uh, and he wasn't failing just one class. Uh, he was failing three or four classes. And it didn't just happen overnight. He'd been failing for a couple of weeks. We just hadn't noticed. And so I pulled him aside right before athletic period. I said, hey, buddy, uh, you're failing like three or four classes. What's going on? And then he shared with me um, that the real reason he was running the day before was not because he was trying to be a leader, but it was because he knew that's exactly what he was supposed to be doing. But when he realized that I hadn't noticed, he took that opportunity and he used it to project an image of himself that wasn't necessarily true. I was a little heated after that, okay? Um, That kid is still running reminders today, 24-7, okay? And unfortunately, uh, what this kid did is he projected an image of himself on the outside that wasn't a true representation of who he really was. And listen, I... There's grace for that kid. I forgive him. Uh, I love that kid. Um, And really, he just did what a lot of us do from time to time. Um, Everyone in this room, uh, we're not perfect. We're sinners. And at times, uh, we project images of ourselves that are not true representations of who we really are. But I share that illustration because I think it's absolutely crucial that as you study the Bible and as you look at who Jesus is, you have to ask yourself, It's the most important question you could ever ask yourself. And it's, is Jesus who he says he is? Is Jesus who he says he is? Because last week, Walt mentioned that Jesus starts his public ministry in the synagogue, opens up Isaiah 61, reads it, and says, this prophetic message about the future Messiah has been fulfilled in your midst. Or AKA, I am the Messiah. Those are pretty big words. And so the question becomes, is Jesus, just like every other false Messiah that's come before him, or is he the real deal? Is Jesus authentic, or is he a liar? Because it's one thing to say something. It's another thing to live out what you say. And so as we jump into this passage, I want us to answer a couple of questions. First off, Does Jesus have the power to back up his authority? And if he has that power, will he use that power for good? And even if we determine that Jesus has that power, and even if we determine that Jesus is good, uh, is he faithful? Is he committed? And what I mean by that is, will he be influenced by outside forces as people try to exalt him? Will he buy in a little bit and just go after the really good people and kind of disregard the really jacked up people? What's he going to do? Is he committed? So authority, affections, ambition. Uh, That's where we're heading as we dive into this passage. And as Walt hit on last week, uh, Jesus' first public sermon uh, was memorable to say the least. They're praising him at the beginning of his sermon, and then at the end of the sermon, they wanted to kill him. I'm kind of hoping that this sermon doesn't have the same effect, right, on y'all. I really praying that doesn't happen. Um, but Jesus is like, hey, if you thought my first sermon was intense, buckle up, because I'm casting out demons and healing folks today. And so that's where we're heading. So Luke 4, verse 33, it says this. In the synagogue, 
There was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And the man cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, O Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown the man down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. So pretty crazy scene here. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and all of a sudden there's this crazy, demon-possessed dude that shows up. And this man's loud, this man is vocal, and this man is confrontational. I mean, usually these are the type of guys you try to avoid, right? Like if I'm with Jesus, I'm like, let's go somewhere else, okay? I don't want to talk to that guy. Uh, But Jesus is unfazed by this man. And there's a lot of things that we can focus on in these verses. But I'm going to mention a couple of things that stand out to me personally as I observe this interaction between the demons and Jesus. Uh, And the first is this. It's the same thing that Roger's been preaching on for a couple of weeks now. Uh, We all need to be fully aware that there's a very real darkness that exists in this world. There's a very real darkness. There's an invisible realm that affects and influences every decision and every action that you and I make. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the spiritual forces of evil that exist in the heavenly realms. Meaning this, our battle, our main battle in this life is not against other people. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against our government. It's not against ISIS. It's not against your boss. It's not against your spouse. It's not against your kids. And it's not even against yourself. Our main battle in this life is a spiritual battle with the unseen that influences everything that you and I do. Now, I'm not discounting human responsibility. Don't twist it. Of course, you're responsible for your actions. And of course, we need to get engaged in our society and be salt and light. But if we don't recognize that the underlying root behind all of our problems is a spiritual battle, we're never going to experience healing. Uh, This past summer, uh, I had the great privilege to lead a couple of our college and singles folks uh, to the Czech Republic on a mission trip. And basically what we did um, is we put on this camp. It was an English camp. And so Czech students, if they wanted to learn English, they'd sign up for the camp. And we would teach them English in the morning. And then in the afternoon, we'd play games. And then in the evening, we'd teach the gospel to these these high school students. And many of them had never heard the gospel before. Uh, Just an amazing trip. Uh, And I remembered that there's this one girl that really caught my attention, this one high school girl. And she showed up to the camp, and and she had these cuts all over her arms, both of them, probably about a hundred of them. And it was, I was just devastated as I looked at this girl, because you could tell that, um, obviously, she was very, very miserable. Uh, She didn't like who she was. Um, And I guarantee you... (laughs) that this sweet little girl didn't wake up one day and decide that the best solution to ease her pain would be to mutilate her body. 
She didn't just wake up and just randomly decide, hey, that's, that's how I'm going to handle this. That's how I'm going to heal myself. I'm going to cut my arms. No, of course she didn't. She didn't just logically come up with that conclusion. But what had happened is over time, there were doubts and lies that are, that are in her mind that she couldn't shake. Lies that told her that she was ugly. Lies that told her that she was worthless. Lies that told her that she had no purpose, that no one likes her. And over time, she began to believe these lies, and so she started to act on them. And I tell you that because I don't know what your struggle is. Maybe you can relate to that illustration. Maybe you can't. But I'm pretty certain that every single person in this room is attacked in in some way or fashion. All of us deal with doubt. All of us deal with lies. And I don't know what it is for you. But I have a pretty good feeling that some of you are in this room and you're struggling profoundly with doubts and lies that are coming from this evil realm. And one of the main points of this passage is to show us that this invisible realm which causes you and I so much pain and so much suffering and so much sin is no match compared to Jesus. It's no match. There's power and there's healing in the name of Jesus. If you don't hear anything else, hear that. Now, one thing I find interesting is that if you study Scripture, all throughout Scripture, there's massive amounts of confusion as far as to who Jesus is. Um, At times, uh, you've got his family who are unsure about who he is. You've got the Pharisees who think Jesus is demon-possessed. You've got the disciples who are wrestling and they're unsure. Uh, And the only ones who consistently get it right in the New Testament are the demons, um, listen, like, I don't know a lot about the angelic realm, okay? Like, if you have questions, I'll talk to you about it after the service. You might want to talk to Roger first, okay? But I'll talk to you, um, and I'm pretty pumped about going to heaven one day because I know Jesus is going to be teaching angelic history 101, and I'm, I'm excited, right? Because I got some big questions for him. But one thing I do know is that when push comes to shove, the demons know who their boss is. Jesus is the alpha dog. And the demons absolutely get this. Yes, there's a spiritual battle going on, but it's not a fair fight. Jesus tells the demons to be quiet, and boom, it's over. Be quiet, silence, get out, gone. That's all there is. There's power in the name of Jesus. And one of the fundamental and orthodox views of Christianity is that the resurrected Christ is going to literally and physically return to earth. Amen? Amen. (laughs) And the hope of the Christian rests in this truth. One of the things Revelation says that Jesus is going to do is when he comes back, uh, it's over for the demons. He is going to wipe evil off of the planet. Um, When Christ comes back, he's going to judge the wicked. And on that day, it'll be the greatest calamity that the world has ever seen. Exodus 513 declares the Lord is a warrior and the Lord is his name. In Revelation 19, when sweet Jesus comes back, there's no smile on his face. There's no compassion. No, when Jesus comes back, he comes back as a man of war. And it'll be a dreadful day for those who don't believe and the demons fit into that category. 
listen to Zephaniah. The author of Zephaniah struggles to find words as he tries to process what the Lord reveals to him these last days will look like. And he says this in Zephaniah 1.15, that day when Christ comes back will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. When Christ comes back, he will unleash his wrath on the wicked in a way that is tough for us to even imagine. And if that doesn't spur you on to share the gospel, maybe this will. When Christ comes back, it will also be the greatest comfort eternity has ever witnessed. For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, I share those things not to scare you. There's nothing to fear when that day comes. Because for the believer in Christ, when that day comes, it's going to be a day of song, a day of dance, a day of healing, and a day of restoration. Zephaniah, who just described the awfulness of the Lord in chapter 1 in the last days, also explains the beauty of the Lord in the last days in Zephaniah 3, 15 through 17. Listen to this, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It says, The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love, and he will exalt over you with loud singing. A couple nights ago, uh, my daughter Avery She's almost two, and uh, she was crying at like 2 a.m., which she doesn't do much anymore. She sleeps pretty good. And so at 2 a.m. when she was crying, she wouldn't go back to sleep. I figured something must be wrong, so I went in there, and I grabbed her out of her crib, and I, I sat in the rocking chair, and I was like, hey, girl, like, what's wrong? Like, why, why are you crying? And uh, all she said, she popped her head up, and she said, Daddy, sing. <laughs> I'm no Ryan Fonseca, okay? Um, <laughs> But for some reason, when I sing to my little girl, it calms her. It brings her peace. And sometimes I get teary-eyed when, I, when I'm rocking her because as I sing, I, I'm honestly not going through the motions. I'll sing blessings over this little girl. I'll sing blessings over her because I love her so much. And what Zephaniah tells us is there's going to come a day where Jesus is going to put away the wicked. He's going to put away everything that tempts you and me. And after he judges the world, he's going to gather his children. And it says there in this passage that it's not the saints that will be singing. Only one voice will be heard. And that's the voice of our Savior Jesus as he comforts his children. And on that day, there's going to be great rest for those who trust in his name. Now back to the passage. Uh, One question that arises in these verses is why does Jesus tell the demons to be quiet? Uh, Wouldn't this help Jesus? If you got demons professing his deity, uh, why would he want them to be quiet? Go ahead, tell everyone, I'm I'm God, right? Um, But he doesn't, he tells them to quiet. And so I'm not gonna stay here real long, but but I'll mention three reasons why I think he does this. Number one, uh, if Jesus wants to reveal his identity through the testimony of others, He's probably not going to choose the demons because the demons aren't necessarily the most reliable sources, okay? 
Um, and so if, if Jesus is trying to reveal who he is, I don't think he's going to be like, I'm going to do it through the demons. Um, I, no, I, I don't think that's what's going on here. But more importantly, uh, what we're going to continue to see throughout Luke is that Jesus didn't necessarily come in order to start a political movement. And what I mean by that uh, is the change that you're going to see is primarily going to happen through transformed lives that will affect every, every domain of society. Okay? And we'll hit on that more as we talk about the kingdom of God. And then lastly, there's a time and place for everything in God's sovereign plan. And now was not the time to unveil who he was in full. So Jesus cast out this demon. And then we read in verses 36 through 37. That amazement came upon the people. And they began talking with one another saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. So you got people, they're amazed with Jesus, right? He's casting out this demon, and they're like, who is this guy? What is his message? And one thing you'll note throughout Scripture as you read it, um, anytime signs and wonders are going on, usually, not always, but usually it's to authenticate new revelation. And I think Jesus is clearly doing that here. For example, when Moses proclaims the law, there's signs and wonders, when Elijah and Elisha proclaim the prophets, their signs and wonders. When Jesus, Jesus shows up on the scene and him and the apostles proclaim the new covenant, their signs and wonders. And I fully believe that right before Jesus comes back again to reign on earth, I think there's going to be signs and wonders that will increase again. And so Jesus is here. He's performing these miracles in order to authenticate his message. And people are responding and then in verses 38 through 39, we see that Jesus leaves the synagogue in order to go to Simon Peter's home. And Dr. Luke notes that Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. And standing over her, Jesus rebuked the fever and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. Now, I, I love these verses. And one of the reasons is because I feel like Jesus is giving us a framework of how to do ministry. And it's, it's not rocket science. It's not complicated. In fact, it's pretty simple. Jesus is showing us, if you want to minister to others, don't wait for them to come to you, but you go to them. All throughout scripture, you see Jesus doesn't wait for sinners to come to him. He goes to the sinners. We see he enters into the synagogue. He enters into Simon Peter's home. He's constantly traveling. He goes from one place to the next. Jesus doesn't just sit at a table in the synagogue with a big sign that says, got questions about God? Come talk to me, right? He doesn't pass out shirts that say Jesus for president, okay? That's not what is happening. What we see throughout the gospels is that Jesus pursues sinners. He goes after sinners. And if you want to imitate and follow Jesus, then you have to be willing to get into the trenches. You got to get out of your bubble and you've got to get your hands dirty, You've got to go to where people are suffering. You've got to go to where people are struggling and hurting. That's why I'm biased sometimes uh, when people come up to me and all, they, they, they've got all this passion to follow Jesus, right? Like they want to make him known. And so they'll be like, yeah, that must mean I'm called to be a pastor. And I'm like, all, all that's within me, I'm like, no. Like maybe that God absolutely calls people to be pastors, but what we need more than anything in this world is more passionate followers of Jesus who are willing to use the craft that God has given you and then 
use it in the spheres that God has placed you. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to go into vocational ministry in order to make Christ known. You just have to be willing to be used by him and God will use you. And I feel like Jesus lays the framework for that here. Now we see here that Jesus intervenes and heals this woman because of her faith. Wrong, not because of her faith. Jesus intervenes and heals this woman, not because of her faith, but because of the faith of the community that surrounds her. Don't miss that. Um, Jesus intervenes based off the community's faith. Um, we talk about it all the time. We, we need community. Like, we're so happy that y'all are here and that you're listening to a message and that we get to worship together. There's great value in that. But if that's all you do, then you are going to miss out because the church is called to do life with one another. We're called to confess sin to one another. We're called to carry one another's burdens. We're called to pray for one another. And there's power in that. There's power when we allow others to pray for us. And that's happening here. The community around Peter's mother-in-law comes to Jesus and they say, please help this woman. Please help her. And he responds. And so we see as the community intervenes for Simon Peter's mother-in-law, Dr. Luke notes that she was suffering from a high fever. And the text tells us that Jesus stands over her, almost as a physician would stand over his patient. And then if you read it in Matthew it says that Jesus actually grabbed her by the hand and he rebuked the fever and boom, it was gone. And then I love verse 39. It tells us that right after this happens, Peter's mother-in-law immediately pops up and waits on them. So she has a fever, she's laying down and boom, she's up, okay? And it says that she waits on them or as other translations tell us, she immediately gets up and starts serving them, which kind of changes the application a little bit. Peter's mother-in-law is healed by Jesus and immediately she starts serving. Which I don't know about you, but that's super convicting. That's super convicting. For me, like in a spiritual sense, there have been many times after coming to know Christ that I will just, I'll get in this spiritual rut and I'll, I'll feel like that God can't use me because of my past mistakes or as I think about my shortcomings, I'll just isolate myself and get in this, this fog of self-pity. And I sense Christ at times saying, Jason, get up. Get up. And there's this voice in my head that says, no, Jason, you don't deserve to get up. You don't deserve to be a pastor. You know what you've done. You don't deserve to have a fresh start. You don't deserve to be a good father. And we can just get isolated and just be sw swarmed with all these lies. And I sense Jesus coming and declaring to all of us, get up. Get up. Yes, you don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. It's a gift. Take it. Get up. Serve. Uh, when Avery was a little girl, um, I guess people said it's good to swaddle these things, right? You swaddle them when they go to bed, right? And you pretty much just wrap them up like a mummy, right? Like you just mummify them, and then you put them in the crib. And so, so Avery's there, like, as a mummy, and I guess, she, you know, it's comfortable for her, so she, she sleeps. And then in the morning, every morning, okay, she did this for a couple of months, like, we'd start to unwrap the swaddling clothes. And every morning, like, without fail, my daughter's arms would do this. Bop! <laughs> her hands would go immediately up, immediately up, every single morning, like brought a smile to my face every morning. And I'll tell you, like that is the natural and proper response for someone who's been set free. 
That's the proper response for someone who's been set free. What do you do once you've been healed? Whether physically or spiritually, what do you do? You worship. You worship your God. And one way that we can worship is by serving. And we see that here with Peter's mother-in-law. Why do you serve? It's not because you have to. It's not because anyone's requiring requiring you to do. It's, It's not because of any of that. You get to. It's a gift to serve. And then we see in verses 40 to 41, while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, you are the son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. So once again, Jesus is healing people who are sick. He's casting out demons. But one thing I don't want us to miss that I think is easily overlooked here, and that's the affection of Jesus. I thought about changing this title to this sermon last minute to power and affection because I feel like it's so evident here. The prevailing view in the first century was that if you had an illness, if you had a disease, or if you had a deformity, you fell into this special class of people called sinners. And there's great debate among people whether you were sick because of your sin or because of your parents' sin. Regardless, though, the reason you're struggling, the reason you're suffering is because you are unclean. You're a sinner. But then you've got Jesus who shows up and completely takes this idea and turns it upside down. And you've got him engaging with people who would have been considered by the ruling or religious elite as unclean. He's taking unclean people, he's laying hands on these people, he's associating with them, and he's healing them. And it drove the holier-than-thou types of people bonkers. No, they would declare. That person deserves what they're getting. They deserve to struggle. They're not obedient. They don't keep the law. They're not good. And what Jesus declares is, yes, I know they're not good, and neither are you. But I love these people. I love these people. Jesus didn't come just for the good people. He didn't come for the people who have their Bible memorized or or for people who went to church their whole life. No, he's come for the broken. He's come for the sick. He's come for those in bondage. He's come for the sinner. He's come for me. And he's come for you. And what Jesus boldly proclaims through his words and actions is that salvation isn't something that's going to happen just by doing. It's not some external, outward thing that you can earn. You can't just check a box and say, okay, now I'm right with God. No, salvation is an inward heart change that can only happen by grace. And Jesus has the power and compassion to grant us that grace. And you contain it through faith in him. Now, another thing that I personally find really interesting about this passage is you have all these unclean people coming to Jesus. And it says, like, he literally puts his hands, lays his hands on each and every one of them. And I just find that really intriguing Because throughout scripture, uh, Jesus can heal however he wants to heal. He doesn't have to put his hands on you. But Luke specifically notes that he lays his hands on every single person. Now, now one reason why I find this really interesting is because I've been reading through the book of Leviticus, uh, which I know all of you do daily, all right? Um, And I'm not going to act holy. I actually, I have to read Leviticus because I'm in a seminary class that forces me to. And so, so I'm reading it. But you'll notice that as you go through Leviticus, 
that, that God sets up this sacrificial system in order to atone for sins. And what you did at certain times is if you sinned against the Lord, is you would take, uh, you would take this unblemished lamb or an unblemished calf or an unblemished goat and you'd bring it to the sanctuary in order to be slaughtered for your sins. But right before you're slaughtered, at times you would put your hands, you'd lay your hands on the head of these animals. And one of the reasons for that was to personalize that moment for you. It became an intimate moment as you identified with this animal. And I'm not saying that this passage directly correlates with Leviticus. But I do find it interesting that here's Jesus laying his hands on, on each person. And it's almost as, as if the roles have switched. Instead of the sinner laying his hand on the sacrifice, the sacrifice is laying his hands on the sinner. And I think one of the reasons why he's doing that is because I think this is a very intimate moment where God, where Jesus, he is literally putting his hands on them and looking them in the eye and saying, I know what you're going through. I see you. I hear you. I see your pain. I see you're struggling. That's why I'm here. I'm doing something about it. Trust me. Trust me. Uh, growing up, I, I struggled a lot with fear. Um, if I would play at a neighbor's house down the road, and if it was nighttime, you better believe I am a hauling back home, right? I'm not going to walk in the dark. I'm running in the dark, right, back home. And at times I'd get scared at night, uh, and I'd be upstairs and have a bad dream or whatever, and so I, I'd sneak down the stairs in order to get in my parents' bed. But, I, but I'd do it really quietly because I didn't want them to hear me, right? Because I, I didn't want to be kicked out. And so I'd, I'd tiptoe in there, and, and I'd, I'd go to my dad's side, because my mom would usually kick me out. And so I'd go to my dad's side, and, uh, and I'd, I'd get on the very edge of the bed, right? And I'd just kind of lay there. I'd be like shivering, right? Just kind of laying there, hoping they wouldn't notice. And then after a while, my dad's big old arm would just plop on top of me. <laughs> just plop on top. And he wouldn't say a word. He communicated everything he needed to communicate through his physical touch. And in that moment, I knew that I had no reason to fear. I was welcomed and accepted in his presence. A few years back, uh, my wife and I were struggling deeply with infertility. And a lot of you, if you're going through that now, or if you have in the past, um, you know the pain that comes with that. And I was also struggling with my calling in life. I was coaching at the time, but also felt like maybe God was calling me to be a pastor but I felt unqualified to be a pastor. I had just all sorts of doubts and lies. And so I went over to my parents' house and I, I just vented to them. And I sat on the couch and pretty soon my, my venting became one of those like sobbing cries. Right? I was just confessing and sobbing. And, um, and after a while, my dad came up behind me and he came up behind, he didn't say a word. He just got his two strong hands and he just held my head. And I just, I just wept as my dad held me there. He just held me. He didn't say one word. And he held me for what seemed like an eternity. And after a while, as I rested in the strength of his strong hands, my, my soul began to calm. My soul began to ease as I rested with my dad as he laid a hold of me. Um, sometimes, during times of suffering, Wisdom and advice are bare at best. Uh, sometimes the best way you can minister to people is not through words. We're a wordy culture. 
But the best way to minister at times is just it's through presence. Uh, for some of you, the most Christ-like thing you can do today is hug your children. Just hold them. And communicate to them through that, that you love them. For others of you, um, quit trying to fix your spouse. <laughs> Just hold her hand. Hold his hand. Let him know you're still there. We're going to get through this. Or maybe you have a friend that's really going through something. Maybe just sit with them. You don't need to give them some profound word. Just listen. Be present. I see that here with Jesus. We have an affectionate God who cares deeply for us, and I fully believe there's going to come a day where Jesus welcomes us into heaven, not with just words of affirmation, but with scar-marked hands. He will embrace us. I look forward to that day. But then to close, we've got verses 42 through 44, and I'm not going to get into it a whole bunch because we're going to talk about what's going on here a lot more in future sermons. But it says that Jesus goes to a secluded place. Okay, with FYI, you're not going to really be able to follow God well if you're not going to places of seclusion in order to sit with him. You've got to. Jesus did it, so do you. You've got to have it. It's for your benefit. But don't get frustrated if you're trying to have your quiet time and then your kids come in or you get distracted by something else because it happened to Jesus all the time, right? He's sitting there goes to a secluded place in order to be with his God, and guess who shows up? All these people. They're like, Jesus, where you been? He's like, well, I was trying to get away. Well, yeah, come on, you know, come here. And they start begging him. They say, Jesus, stay here. Like, good things are happening. Like, be exalted. We love your message. Like, be the king. Stay with us. And then Jesus does something absolutely profound. He says, I'm not going to stay here. I'm leaving. And you're like, why would you leave? Like, they're accepting your message. They're responding. Well, just stay there. Build your kingdom. But Jesus says, no, that's, that's not why I'm here. Matthew 20, 28 says that Jesus didn't come to be served. But instead, he came down to, to lay his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus leaves, knowing full well that the path ahead of him would lead him to the cross. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's profound. And it's why you and I have every reason to be hopeful. Jesus is who he says he is. He has compassion to back up what he claims. He has power to back up his compassion. And he's absolutely faithful to finish what he set out to do, even if it was going to cause him much pain. The cross is proof, proof of this. The work that he has started in you, church, he is going to bring to completion because we have a compassionate God who loves us deeply and he has the power to do something about it. Let me pray. Well, Father God, you are holy, and you could do anything that you want. You have the power to do anything. You don't need us. But the fact that you sent Jesus, fully perfect, completely obedient. God in the flesh, you sent him to die for our sins. We don't deserve it. But we'll accept it. And we'll praise you for that grace. And God, I pray that you'd help all of us in this room to take a moment in order to get back up and worship you and serve you. Father, we love you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.